Chapter 13 of The Princess and the Plowman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mrs. L. Sid. The Princess and the Plowman by Florence Morse Kingsley. Chapter 13. The correlated thoughts and events which finally led Jerome Chantry into seeking an interview with Hugh Ghent need not be set down in their order. When one has fully determined upon a course of action, whether righteous or unrighteous, the stars in their courses appear to fight for him. And be it remembered that the younger Chantry was in no wise conscious of evil intent towards any human being. He had experienced little difficulty in fully convincing himself that his motives were beyond question. He had, he was confident, loved Mary for years, and in his mirror and his bank account, as well as in the esteem of the public mind, he could find no adequate reason to doubt that she could be brought to love him in return. But in justice to Jerome Chantry it should be stated that he seldom, if ever, considered Mary's attitude towards himself. He had lived long and blamelessly in the marriage relation before death intervened to widow him, and during those years of marital felicity he had become fully confirmed in his early and comfortable conviction with regard to women, which in no way differed from a strictly orthodox acceptation of the order of creation as set down in scriptural text, written, translated, and interpreted by masculine minds, especially accredited by the Almighty. If Mary did not love him, plainly she ought to love him, and whether she did or did not, the outcome concerned itself with his own wishes rather than with hers. In like easy and sweeping manner he had been enabled to set aside the shadowy claims of Hugh Ghent, but it had appeared to him as quite the gentlemanly and civil thing to do, to apprise Mr. Ghent of his intentions. It was, therefore, in this eminently charitable and Christian state of mind that Mr. Chantry presented himself at the old Ghent homestead at as early an hour as comported with a careful toilette and a comfortable and copious breakfast. Mr. Chantry was most particular as to the care of his sentient bodily structure. He reflected with satisfaction that Mary should shortly participate in these privileges, and in due course profit by them. It was cold in the country, and a biting wind swept in off the sea. Mr. Chantry's large face was quite purple with it by the time he dismounted stiffly from the slow-going stage which brought him from the station. As he brushed the clinging snow from his trousers' legs, and sought for an immaculate, scented handkerchief wherewith to delicately caress his frost-nipped nose, he thoughtfully reviewed his case as he intended to present it to the owner of the house upon whose doorstep he was standing. Several telling sentences came to him after the bell had sounded within. It was, after all, so obvious a matter that a wayfaring man, though a fool, could not well err therein, and Hugh Ghent, he had been led to believe, was no fool though he had appeared unlearned in the ways of the world to a pitiable degree. He was sorry for Ghent, he told himself benevolently, and he would do something handsome for him one of these days. He would, indeed. Glowing with these generous impulses, as well as with the nipping outer air, Mr. Chantry was presently introduced by Premelia McKenney into Hugh Ghent's library, which served as his living room as well. It was a large room, stretching quite across the house, with windows to the south and east commanding wide prospects of stormy sea and wind-swept land. Mr. Chantry comfortably planted on the hearth-rug, 
with coat-tails spread wide to the genial warmth, allowed his eyes to wander at ease over the bleak prospect without. He even smiled indulgently as he endeavored to picture Mary at home amid these rude surroundings. <laughs> rude surroundings being the phrase which appeared to Mr. Chantry's mind as most fitting to describe the savage purple of the sea under the hurrying clouds, the naked trees, the distant pastures, and the nearer garden closes, forlorn and stripped of their summer boscage. The room itself was not so bad, not so bad, he told himself, with a pleasant glow of patronage. Really, Ghent had contrived to make a very respectable place of it. To be sure, the bookcases, which filled every available wall space, were obviously homemade. But there were two or three ancient prints, and one glowing bit of landscape upon which his commercial eye rested approvingly. The painted floor boasted a decent rug or so, and the heavy old-fashioned mahogany sofa, with its pile of crimson cushions, drew a second approving glance. Mr. Chantry was quite prepared to be very gracious indeed to the owner of the room, and his plump face assumed its blandest society curves as he heard the heavy step of the master on the flags without. Hugh Ghent had come directly from his labor in an adjoining bit of woodland, which he was clearing of underbrush. He did not excuse himself for his rude flannel shirt, nor his heavy boots, which bore unmistakable traces of the ploughed ground across which he had come with haste at Permelia's summons. He brought with him into the warm room a wild breath of the sea and the cold earth which caused Mr. Chantry to draw a little nearer to the fire. After the preliminary greetings, a brief silence fell between the two men, during which Hugh Ghent deliberately scanned his visitor's face and figure with eyes as cold as the weather, and Jerome Chantry hastily reviewed his carefully prepared remarks. He had, curiously enough, forgotten a number of the telling phrases with which he had intended to introduce himself and his errand, in the presence of this tall and broad figure which confronted him. "'I am here,' he began at last, "'in the character of—well, sir, as an emissary,' "'If I may use the expression?' He paused to glance inquiringly at the immobile face of his listener. Hugh Gant waited for him to go on. Mr. Chantry coughed deprecatingly, then smiled slyly to himself. He was beginning to feel quite at his ease. "'You may not be aware of the fact, but I am, that is, I hope I may be permitted to style myself, a very good friend of Miss—I should say of Mrs. Gant's. I am, as you may be aware—' a nephew of Judge Chantry's, and a frequent visitor at his house. Hugh Gent's unswerving blue eyes compelled him to continue. And, er, as such, I have, of course, been in the confidence of the family to the extent of knowing all that has taken place of late. I am now referring to Mary's unfortunate marriage. Mr. Chantry was quick to perceive the uncontrollable quiver which passed over the rugged face of his listener, and the sight of it supplied him with courage for his next sentence. I use the word unfortunate advisedly, Mr. Gant, for a marriage which brings only embarrassment and sadness to either participant can hardly be regarded as otherwise. And I regret to be obliged to tell you that Mary is not uh, as happy as I, as her friends could wish to see her. Did my wife ask you to come here and tell me this? demanded Hugh Gant. His voice was harsh and insistent. "'Well, no, that is, hardly,' stammered the other, thrown for an instant off his guard. "'But you ought to know it, sir,' 
Surely you ought to know it. Yes, I ought to know it. Go on. My wife is unhappy, you say. Mr. Chantry drew a quick breath. His greenish eyes narrowed to a slit. I have been led to expect great magnanimity, not to say generosity on your part, Mr. Gint, he said blandly. And that is why, in short, sir, I may say that your previous magnanimity explains my presence in your house this morning. Jerome broadened his chest and passed a smooth hand over his sleek head with an air of purring complacency. He was feeling very well pleased with himself and his exquisite diplomacy. "'What can I do to help her?' demanded Hugh Gent, fixing his somber eyes upon his visitor. "'If you know, tell me.' "'You can release her!' cried Chantry with dramatic suddenness. "'You can stand out of the way of a better man!' "'And that better man?' "'Is myself!' Why should I not say it? I loved her before you ever set eyes upon her. The marriage between us was arranged as definitely as a marriage can be in America. I knew how immature, how almost childish she was. Therefore, I waited her time as many another man has waited. I was resolved not to hurry her, though God knows I could ill afford to wait for a wife at my time of life. And while I stood one side, in order not to intrude myself upon her over soon, you stepped in and bound her to yourself, and without consulting her guardian or friends. It was a damnable outrage, and, and I hold you accountable. Does she love you? Jerome Chantry's pale eyes fell before the fierce question, and the leap and tug of leashed passions behind it. Oh, as to that, you know, he began lamely, I, I am, er, waiting for her to be legally unembarrassed before I urged the question. There would be a certain diffidence, you understand, a certain delicacy to a, to such a man as myself under the circumstances, in putting so pointed an inquiry. I am a Christian gentleman, sir, a churchwarden in short, and I beg to remind you that I recognize all the, the proprieties due to the peculiar situation. Then you have not as yet proposed marriage to my wife. No, most certainly not, sir. Thank you. I shall wait until, well, until you... Jerome completed his halting sentence with a darting glance of inquiry at the other's impassive face. You may tell my wife that when I receive from her a request for release, it shall be given, immediately and unconditionally. But... She must ask me for her release, continued Hugh Gant with stern immobility. When she has done this, I shall release her, and not before. Do you understand? Jerome Chantry stood up and buttoned his coat. His face had become curiously mottled with dim purplish spots. His plump hands trembled visibly. You have made a most embarrassing condition, sir, he said. Mary is a peculiarly sensitive woman, as you are probably not aware. But as one who knows her well, indeed intimately, I may say that I consider your condition as almost cruelly unjust. A man of fine feeling, a gentleman in short, would offer her an unconditional release from claims which have no real foundation in fact or fancy. Hugh Gant had also risen and was staring at his visitor with savage intentness. His large hands were clenched behind his back. You are mistaken in one thing, he said deliberately. My claims have a foundation. Indeed, and may I inquire as to its nature, sneered the other. 
I love my wife. That is my one and only claim. But I am prepared to defend it against every human being but herself. Now, do you understand me? Jerome Chantry allowed a slight, insulting smile to lift the corners of his thin lips. A most extraordinary claim, I should say, under the circumstances, he said softly. He turned and made for the door, then paused. I think, he added with distinct and careful politeness, that we fully understand each other. I shall undertake with pleasure to procure from, er, Mrs. Ghent, the request which you are pleased to inquire and which you have agreed to honor. The rest will follow in due time. I am glad to have met you and to have had the opportunity for this, a uh, very interesting conversation. I will bid you good day, sir. Hugh Ghent took a single forward step, his blue eyes blazing with unguarded fury, but the door had already closed upon his uninvited guest. After a pause, during which he stood before his fire, plunged deep in unhappy meditation, he left the house by way of the kitchen. "'Don't wait dinner for me, Permelia,' he called out to the woman, whose soft, dark eyes hung upon his movements like those of a faithful dog. "'I'm going up to the hill lot to chop wood. I shan't be home till dark.' Uh, "'Master Hugh,' expostulated Miss Micklehenny. "'But you'll let me put you up a bit of lunch, won't you? Just a slice of cold beef and a—' But he was already out of hearing, his tall figure swinging along against the darkening sky— from which occasional hard, compacted kernels of snow were beginning to drift upon the bitter wind. "'May the Lord help him!' ejaculated the woman with pious fervor. She stood by the window, wiping her eyes from time to time with her gingham apron. "'May the Lord help him!' she repeated. "'And, and her!' she added grudgingly as she turned once more to her interrupted tasks. As old Andrew Micklehenny went about his duties on that same day, he was conscious of a great burden of prayer and supplication which had descended upon him out of the unseen. His lips moved soundlessly, and in his heart were those deeper groanings of spirit which may not be uttered in word or sigh. From a human and practical standpoint, Mr. Micklehenny was forced to acknowledge that his young master had been guilty of a grievous folly. "'Thou knowest, Lord, that Master Hugh should have taken counsel with me,' he complained in the undisputed privacy of the great barn. I could have advised him to his profit, but now that he is fair stalled in the miry clay of his own self-will, and I can do not to help him, do thou, Lord, come to his relief and deliver him. From the spot where he was actively engaged in shucking corn, Mr. Micklehenny witnessed the arrival of Jerome Chantry, and also his departure. To something evil to do with her, he divined prophetically, and gave himself to renewed supplications. "'His horn hath he exalted like the horn of a unicorn,' he muttered as his stern eye fell upon Jerome Chantry's portly form, surmounted by a tall silk hat. "'But it shall be brought low. He also that hath waxed fat in his iniquity shall be made lean. Ay, go thy ways,' he continued as the gate closed after the flushed and wrathful Chantry. Our God will defend Master Hugh against all such as take counsel against him to disturb his peace. Yet I doubt if a word of honest counsel from me will come amiss. He pondered the matter while the pile of husked corn was growing, and at noon made little answer to the gentle patter of Permelia's conversation, while she complained at length of Hugh working without food in the bitter weather. A sore heart needs the company of a full stomach, I'm thinking, 
he should have come home to his dinner she said more especial as the man was the bearer of evil tidings and i cooked a chicken because of him how should you know the man's errand in the house demanded her father how should i know uh, well father there be many ways of knowing what goes on behind closed doors my ears are keen to hear what concerns master hugh and their voices were loud he came asking a release for her now what think you of mistress ghent she herself comes not but sends such a man may the lord help her amen to that daughter and he will help her said andrew devoutly stay a little father while i put up dinner for master hugh urged permelia you must take it to him in the upper wood lot and father see that he eats it will you he has no call to perish with hunger because of a foolish woman oh but i pray to god i may have the chance to say to her what is in my heart before i die see that your heart is filled with love before ever you speak advised andrew out of the angry heart come mischiefs innumerable to plague the world a woman's heart is often angry and therefore her lips speak foolishness but he added complacently in the heart of a man is wisdom the scattered snowflakes of the morning had already thickened to a dizzying whirl the frozen clods were fast whitening and to the windward of leaf-strewn thickets the first drifts of winter were rearing airy superstructures upon the strown foundations of frozen sleet twill be a bitter winter meditated old andrew to himself as he trudged along the sharp ringing blows of an axe reached his ear long before he came to the upper wood lot where hugh was at work tis o working against sorrow he muttered yet to labour even in bitterness of soul is better than to be idle he stood for a while watching the young man before making his quiet presence known hugh had cast aside his coat and was wielding his axe with dogged unsparing energy mr micklehenny observed with amazement that he was attacking the great trunk of a hickory which had been long cherished with especial pride a hey, master hugh you're cutting the biggest hickory at last he exclaimed i was thinking that tree was to be spared for the joy of future generations it's many and many a time you've told me so and your father before you hugh dropped his axe to the ground with a thud i didn't notice what i was cutting he said dully it makes no difference anyway there'll be no one to care after me now master hugh said the old man resolutely as he advanced and set down his basket i'll trouble you to put on your coat against the cold with such you listen to me you've neither father nor mother to counsel you but i've a word for you in my heart that will out it's lain there unsaid for many days but the lord hath shapen it in secret or long tis ready to be uttered now and you shall hear it whether you will or no here also is food hugh scowled at the basket say what you have to say and be done with it he said roughly i am in no mood for talk keep your ain counsel then retorted the old man sharply but i have this much to say to you lad if you love the woman you call wife go to her and tell her so shall not listen to me groaned hugh there's no woman living who will not listen to the tale of an honest man's love but it should be spoken with power and with the knowledge that back of it that you are claiming what god has already given into your keeping the lassie is yours by the grace and favour of the almighty take her then and let no man say you nay she will not say you nay maister hugh if she be true woman and i find it in my heart to say that she is no other 
Now I have spoken my word, and I'll not add to it. You will even do as you are pleased to do. But I would that you eat and be refreshed. And may the Lord bless you, Mr. Hugh, as he blessed your feather before you. And may he cause his face to shine upon her as it shone upon the soul of your mither. So shall ye both be kept safe in the arms of the everlasting love. But there was no talk of love between us, objected Hugh, staring at the old man with haggard eyes. I was demented. Crazy, I think, now. God knows I met purely by her. But now she cries out like an innocent creature sorely hurt by a savage trap. I must let her go. There is no other way. Marriage is no trap to hurt the tenderest bit lassie o'er them all, said Andrew gently. Rather it is a strongfold, fashioned to keep out the cold of the world and the sting of it. I and the wolf also, who comes not save to kill and to destroy. But this was like no other marriage, sighed Hugh. It is true that I hoped. Hoping is good, Master Hugh, but you must even claim your own if you would possess it, interrupted the old man strongly. If you will not, another will take it from you. Tis the law in all things under heaven. I've seen it and proved it. I will write to her, said Hugh at last, heaving a great breath of pain which floated and vanished spirit-like in the frosty air. Go to her, urged Andrew. The spoken word is I best. Go to her now. The young man picked up his axe. Leave me, Andrew, he ordered curtly. I must think further of what you have said. He could not bring himself to speak of the unanswered letter, but the memory of it lay like a stone upon his heart. If she had cared for me, he thought bitterly, she would have asked me to come. End of chapter 13